Section 10 of Gallagher and Other Stories by Richard Harding Davis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. There were ninety and nine. Part two. The Goodwood Plunger turned his back to the lights so that the people passing by could not see his face, and tore the letter up slowly and dropped it piece by piece over the balcony. "'If I could,' he whispered, "'if I could.' The pain was a little worse than usual just then, but it was no longer a question of inclination. He felt only this desire to stop these thoughts and doubts and the physical tremor that shook him. To rest and sleep, that was what he must have, and peace. There was no peace at home or anywhere else while this thing lasted. He could not see why they worried him in this way. It was quite impossible. He felt much more sorry for them than for himself, but only because they could not understand. He was quite sure that if they could feel what he suffered, they would help him, even to end it. He had been standing for some time with his back to the light, but now he turned to face it and to take up his watch again. He felt quite sure the lights would not burn much longer. As he turned, a woman came forward from out the lighted hall, hovered uncertainly before him, and then made a silent salutation, which was something between a courtesy and a bow that she was a woman and rather short and plainly dressed and that her hair bobbing up and down annoyed him was all that he realized of her presence and he quite failed to connect her movements with himself in any way sir she said in french i beg your pardon but might i speak with you the goodwood plunger possessed a somewhat various knowledge of monte carlo and its habitues it was not the first time that women who had lost at the tables had begged a Napoleon from him, or asked the distinguished child of fortune what color or combination she should play. That, in his luckier days, had happened often, and had amused him. But now he moved back irritably, and wished that the figure in front of him would disappear as it had come. "'I am in great trouble, sir,' the woman said. I have no friends here, sir, to whom I may apply. I am very bold, but my anxiety is very great. The Goodwood Plunger raised his hat slightly and bowed. Then he concentrated his eyes with what was a distinct effort on the queer little figure hovering in front of him, and stared very hard. She wore an odd piece of red coral for a brooch, and by looking steadily at this, he brought the rest of the figure into focus, and saw, without surprise, for every commonplace seemed strange to him now, and everything peculiar, quite a matter of course, that she was distinctly not an habitué of the place, and looked more like a lady's maid than an adventuress. She was French and pretty, such a girl as might wait in a Duval restaurant, or sit as a cashier behind a little counter near the door. "'We should not be here,' she said, as if in answer to his look, 
and in apology for her presence, but Louis, my husband, he would come. I told him that this was not for such as we are, but Louis is so bold. He said that upon his marriage tour he would live with the best, and so here he must come to play as the others do. We have been married, sir, only since Tuesday, and we must go back to Paris to-morrow. They would give him only the three days. He is not a gambler. He plays dominoes at the cafes, it is true. But what will you? He is young and with so much spirit, and I know that you, sir, who are so fortunate, and who understand so well how to control these tables, I know that you will persuade him. He will not listen to me. He is so greatly excited, and so little like himself. You will help me, sir, will you not? You will speak to him. The good wood plunger knit his eyebrows and closed the lids once or twice, and forced the mistiness and pain out of his eyes. It was most annoying. The woman seemed to be talking a great deal and to say very much, but he could not make sense of it. He moved his shoulders slightly. I can't understand, he said wearily, turning away. It is my husband, the woman said anxiously. Louis, he is playing at the table inside, and he is only an apprentice to old Carbou the baker. But he owns a third of the store. It was my dot that paid for it, she added proudly. Old Carbou says he may have it all for twenty thousand francs, and then old Carbou will retire, and we will be proprietors. We have saved a little, and we had counted to buy the rest in five or six years if we were very careful. "'I see, I see,' said the plunger, with a little short laugh of relief. "'I understand.' He was greatly comforted to think that it was not so bad as it had threatened. He saw her distinctly now, and followed what she said quite easily, and even such a small matter as talking with this woman seemed to help him. "'He is gambling,' he said, "'and losing the money, and you come to me to advise him what to play.' "'I understand.' "'Well, tell him he will lose what little he has left. "'Tell him I advise him to go home. "'Tell him—' "'No, no,' said the girl excitedly. "'You do not understand. "'He has not lost. "'He has won.' He has won, oh, so many rolls of money, but he will not stop. Do you not see? He has won as much as we could earn in many months, in many years, sir, by saving and working. Oh, so very hard, and now he risks it again, and I cannot force him away. But if you, sir, if you would tell him how great the chances are against him, if you who know would tell him how foolish he is not to be content with what he has he would listen he says to me bah you are a woman and he is so red and fierce he is imbecile with the sight of the money but he will listen to a grand gentleman like you he thinks to win more and more and he thinks to buy another third from old carbou is it not foolish is it so wicked of him? Oh, yes, said the good wood plunger, nodding. I see now. You want me to take him away so that he can keep what he has. 
I see. But I don't know him. He will not listen to me, you know. I have no right to interfere. He turned away, rubbing his hand across his forehead. He wished so much that this woman would leave him by himself. Ah, but, sir, cried the girl desperately, and touching his coat, you were so fortunate and so rich, and of the great world, you cannot feel what this is to me, to have my own little shop, and to be free, and not to slave and sew and sew until my back and fingers burn with the pain. Speak to him, sir. I'll speak to him. It is an easy thing to do, and he will listen to you. The Goodwood Plunger turned again abruptly. Where is he? he said. Point him out to me. The woman ran ahead with a murmur of gratitude to the open door and pointed to where her husband was standing, leaning over and placing some money on one of the tables. He was a handsome young Frenchman, as bourgeois as his wife, and now terribly alive and excited in the self-contained air of the place, and in contrast with the silence of the great hall, he seemed even more conspicuously out of place. The plunger touched him on the arm, and the Frenchman shoved the hand off impatiently and without looking around. The plunger touched him again, and forced him to turn toward him. "'Well,' said the Frenchman, "'well, Madame, your wife,' said cecil with the grave politeness of an old man has done me the honour to take me into her confidence she tells me that you have won a great deal of money that you could put it to good use at home and so save yourselves much drudgery and debt and all that sort of trouble you are quite right if you say it is no concern of mine it is not but really you know there is a great deal of sense in what she wants and you have apparently already won a large sum. The Frenchman was visibly surprised at this approach. He paused for a second or two in some doubt, and even awe, for the disinherited one carried the mark of personage of consideration, and of one whose position is secure. Then he gave a short, unmirthful laugh. Huh. "'You are most kind, sir,' he said, with mock politeness, and with an impatient shrug, but Madame, my wife, has not done well to interest a stranger in this affair, which, as you say, concerns you not. He turned to the table again with a defiant swagger of independence, and placed two rolls of money upon the cloth, casting at the same moment a childish look of displeasure at his wife. "'You see,' said the plunger, with a deprecatory turning out of his hands, but there was so much grief on the girl's face that he turned again to the gambler and touched his arm. He could not tell why he was so interested in these two. He had witnessed many such scenes before, and they had not affected him in any way except to make him move out of hearing. But the same dumb numbness in his head, which made so many things seem possible that should have been terrible even to think upon, made him stubborn and unreasonable over this. He felt intuitively, it could not be said that he thought, that the woman was right and the man wrong, and so he grasped him again by the arm and said sharply this time, Come away, do you hear? You are acting foolishly. But even as he spoke, 
the red won, and the Frenchman, with a boyish gurgle of pleasure, raked in his winnings with two hands, and then turned with a happy, triumphant laugh to his wife. It is not easy to convince a man that he is making a fool of himself when he is winning some hundred francs every two minutes. His silent arguments to the contrary are difficult to answer, but the plunger did not regard this in the least. "'Do you hear me?' he said in the same stubborn tone, and with much the same manner with which he would have spoken to a groom, come away. Again the Frenchman tossed off his hand, this time with an execration, and again he placed the rolls of gold coin on the red, and again the red won. "'My God!' cried the girl, running her fingers over the rolls on the table. "'He has won half of the twenty thousand francs. Oh, sir, stop him! Stop him!' she cried take him away do you hear me cried the plunger excited to a degree of utter self-forgetfulness and carried beyond himself you've got to come with me take away your hand whispered the young frenchman fiercely see i shall win it all in one grand coup i shall win it all i shall win five years pay in one moment he swept all the money forward on the red, and threw himself over the table to see the wheel. "'Wait, confound you!' whispered the plunger excitedly. "'If you will risk it, risk it with some reason. You can't play all that money. They won't take it. Six thousand francs is the limit, unless,' he read on quickly, "'you divide the twelve thousand francs among the three of us. You understand?' six thousand francs is all that any one person can play but if you give four thousand to me and four thousand to your wife and keep four thousand yourself we can each chance it you can back the red if you like your wife shall put her money on the numbers coming up below eighteen and i will back the odd in that way you stand to win twenty-four thousand francs if our combination wins and you lose less than if you simply back the color do you understand? No, cried the Frenchman, reaching for the piles of money which the plunger had divided rapidly into three parts. On the red, all on the red. Good heavens, man, cried the plunger bitterly. I may not know much, but you should allow me to understand this dirty business. He caught the Frenchman by the wrist, and the young man, more impressed with his strange look, in the boy's face, than by his physical force, stood still. While the ball rolled and rolled, and clicked merrily and stopped and balanced, then it settled into the seven. Red, odd, and below, the croupier droned mechanically. Ah, you see, what did I tell you, said the plunger, with sudden calmness. You have won more than your twenty thousand francs. You are proprietors. I congratulate you. Oh, my God, said the Frenchman, in a frenzy of delight. I will double it. He reached toward the fresh piles of coin, as if he meant to sweep them back again, but the plunger put himself in the way with a quick movement, caught up the rolls of money, and dropped them into the skirt of the woman, which she raised like an apron to receive her treasure. Now, said young Herringford determinedly, you come with me. The Frenchman tried to argue and resist, but the plunger pushed him on with the silent stubbornness of a drunken man. 
he handed the woman into a carriage at the door, shoved her husband in beside her, and while the man drove to the address she gave him, he told the Frenchman, with an air of a chief of police, that he must leave Monte Carlo at once, that very night. "'Do you suppose I don't know?' he said. "'Do you fancy I speak without knowledge? I've seen them come here rich, and go away paupers. But you shall not. You shall keep what you have, and spite them.' He sent the woman up to her room to pack, while he expostulated with and browbeat the excited bridegroom in the carriage. When she returned with the bag packed, and so heavy with the gold that the servants could hardly lift it up beside the driver, he ordered the coachman to go down the hill to the station. "'The train for Paris leaves at midnight,' he said, "'and you will be there by morning.' then you must close your bargain with this old carbou and never return here again the frenchman had turned during the ride from an angry indignant prisoner to a joyful madman and was now tearfully and effusively humble in his petitions for pardon and in his thanks their benefactor as they were pleased to call him hurried them into the waiting train and ran to purchase their tickets for them now he said as the guard locked the door of the compartment you are alone and no one can get in and you cannot get out go back to your home to your new home and never come to this wretched place again promise me you understand never again they promised with effusive reiteration they embraced each other like children and the man pulling off his hat called upon the good lord to thank the gentleman you will be in paris will you not said the woman in an ecstasy of pleasure and you will come to see us in our own shop will you not ah we should be so greatly honored sir if you would visit us if you would come to the home you have given us you have helped us so greatly sir she said and may heaven bless you she caught up his gloved hand as it rested on the door and kissed it until he snatched it away in great embarrassment and flushing like a girl her new husband drew her toward him and the young bride sat at his side with her face close to his and wept tears of pleasure and of excitement ah look sir said the young man joyfully look how happy you have made us you have made us happy for the rest of our lives the train moved out with a quick, heavy rush, and the car-wheels took up the young stranger's last words, and seemed to say, You have made us happy, made us happy for the rest of our lives. It had all come about so rapidly that the plunger had had no time to consider or to weigh his motives, and all that seemed real to him now, as he stood alone on the platform of the dark, deserted station, were the words of the men echoing and re-echoing like the refrain of the song, and then there came to him suddenly, and with all the force of a gambler's superstition, the thought that the words were the same as those which his father had used in his letter. You can make us happy for the rest of our lives. Ah, he said with a quick gasp of doubt, if I could, if I made those poor fools happy, mayn't I live to be something to him and to her? Oh, God, he cried, but so gently that one at his elbow could not have heard him, if I could, 
if I could. He tossed up his hands and drew them down again and clenched them in front of him and raised his tired hot eyes to the calm purple sky with its millions of moving stars. Help me, he whispered fiercely, help me. And as he bowed his head, that queer, numb feeling seemed to go, and a calm came over his nerves and left him in peace. He did not know what it might be, nor did he dare to question the change which had come to him, but turned and slowly mounted the hill, with the awe and fear still upon him, of one who had passed beyond himself for one brief moment into another world. When he reached his room he found his servant bending with an anxious face over a letter which he tore up guiltily as his master entered. "'You were writing to my father,' said Cecil gently. "'Were you not?' well you need not finish your letter we are going home i am going away from this place walters he said as he pulled off his coat and threw himself heavily on the bed i will take the first train that leaves here and i will sleep a little while you put up my things the first train you understand within an hour if it leaves that soon his head sank back on the pillows heavily as though he had come in from a long weary walk and his eyes closed, and his arm fell easily at his side. The servant stood, frightened and yet happy, with the tears running down his cheeks, for he loved his master dearly. "'We are going home, Walters,' the plunger whispered drowsily. "'We are going home, home to England, and Herringford, and the Governor.' and we are going to be happy for all the rest of our lives. He paused a moment, and Walters bent forward over the bed and held his breath to listen. For he came to me, murmured the boy, as though he was speaking in his sleep, when I was yet a great way off, while I was yet a great way off, and ran to meet me. His voice sank until it died away into silence, and a few hours later, when Walters came to wake him, he found his master sleeping like a child and smiling in his sleep. End of section 10